Hey there, I'm Christopher Schoenwald, and welcome to Life As A, a show intently focused on helping people find their professional pathway by exploring and unearthing the details of jobs from around the world. For listeners who have been tuning in regularly, you've probably noticed I've got this little spiel off the top where I'm asking people to go over to YouTube. I have a channel over there, Life As A, dot, dot. And basically, it's just highlights from the main audio versions, from the podcast versions of these talks that I have with these great guests. And the reason I'm plugging it so hard is that I think this content really does matter. And I want to get it in front of people. I want to get in front of youth, people that are still undecided, who just don't know what they want to do with their lives. And I think this platform, you know, One YouTube, offers that opportunity kind of get up close and personal with some of these guests in a different format. And if you're just not into audio, if you're not into podcasting as a whole, that's fine. That's okay. Well, you can still digest the content in a different way. I would encourage you, if you do know somebody who's looking for that career, looking for some ideas, direct them over to lifeasa.dot over on YouTube. You know, if they're into videos, they might just find what they're looking for over there. And while you are there, hey, I would always appreciate a like or subscribe. It's the best way to let that algorithm know that the content matters, that it should be put in front of others. Well, I do thank you for letting me ask this of you, but I think it's about time we get into today's episode. I think that we can all agree that life within the 21st century is no longer creeping towards digitization. It is full-blown blasting forward into this realm. Much, if not all, of our data is digitally stored by banks, governments, social networks, consumer enterprises, and so on. I mean, the reasons are sound. All of this digitization equals boosts in things like efficiency, transparency, and accessibility. All is well in this race to digitize everything. Alright, give me a second to remove these rose-tinted glasses. Obviously, not everything is hunky-dory. Just as bad actors are lurking and ready to exploit in the physical world, they've kind of migrated to this digital realm too. And we're finding this out in the form of things like digital scams that are absolutely proliferating via phishing emails, texts, websites, etc., etc. Ransomware organizations are on the rise too, targeting individuals and companies. And much of this is taking place in an arena some would deem the digital wild west, aka the dark web. Well, fortunately, this space is also being patrolled and monitored by those seeking out such criminals. That is the focus of today's episode. I've got this great guest whose job it is to track dark web threat actors and alert relevant parties. Her title is that of a cyber threat intelligence and dark web advisor. Super interesting, right? You're going to learn all about this fascinating work as far as roles, responsibilities, challenges, rewards, and a heck of a lot more. So let me more formally introduce her to you, and we can get started. Mary D'Angelo is a pioneering cyber threat intelligence and dark web advisor. Mary stands at the forefront of cyber threat intelligence, helping clients understand the threats that exist on the dark web and how to use that intelligence to bolster their cybersecurity programs. Now, with a solid foundation from the University of Washington, where she earned her bachelor's degree, Mary has rapidly ascended as a global leader at Searchlight Cyber, 
Her expertise, honed over six years, delves deep into understanding the nuances of dark web threat actors and their intelligence. Mary's academic journey is marked by distinguished achievements. She was the exclusive recipient of the Washington Women in Need Scholarship in 2015 and 2016, a testament to her dedication and academic prowess. This recognition was further solidified when she received the highest student recognition award at the University of Washington, the Husky 100, setting her apart as a scholar of exceptional caliber. Now, her professional journey is equally impressive. Mary's work has been instrumental in shedding light on the shadowy aspects of cyber threats emanating from the dark web. Her work not only aids in neutralizing these threats, but also contributes significantly to the broader understanding of cybersecurity dynamics. Recently, Mary's expertise gained international recognition. She was one of only five practitioners invited to a prestigious Diagstall think tank in Warden, Germany. This three-day event was a convergence of minds from academia and practice, aiming to forge stronger alliances in understanding and combating threats related to social engineering and the dark web. Mary's speech at the event, highlighting innovative approaches to dark web threat intelligence, garnered significant attention and acclaim, and it has paved way for the upcoming research in the field, positioning her as a thought leader and catalyst for change in cyber threat intelligence. Additionally, Mary's passion is volunteering her talents into nonprofit organizations. She was a mentor for Big Brothers and Big Sisters, and recently she has devoted her time to a nonprofit called the Innocent Lives Foundation which uses dark web threat intelligence to help law enforcement stop child traffickers. All up, Mary D'Angelo's journey is a blend of academic excellence and professional mastery, making her a beacon in the field of cyber threat intelligence and dark web analysis. Her contributions are not only shaping current understanding, but are also charting new territories in the realm of cybersecurity. So with all this noted, here is my conversation with Mary D'Angelo. Yeah, so welcome to the program. How are you doing today, Mary? Good, I'm doing well. How are you? Yeah, excellent. I've been looking forward to this conversation as we were just speaking off air. You know, it's been on my calendar for a little bit. And, uh, you know, I've heard a lot of great things about you and your work. And obviously the topic of conversation today, dark web, I think is one that represents a bit of a black box for a lot of people. So, I'm, yeah, like I said, interested to dive into it all. But anyway, I do have this first segment lined up. It's something called Coloring Wikipedia. As my listeners know, it's a segment where I just list off a definition related to the work of what the guest is all about or does. And surprise, surprise, I went with dark web. So let me just read that off for you, and uh, perhaps we can get some comments after. Does that sound okay? Perfect. All right, great. Dark web. The dark web is the World Wide Web content that exists on dark nets, overlay networks that use the internet but require specific software, configurations, or authorization to access. Through the dark web, private computer networks can communicate and conduct business anonymously without divulging identifying information such as a user's location. There it is, short and sweet. First impressions, what would you say to that? So I think, I mean, it's accurate, it's, it's very technical, but I would, I would say to understand the dark web, it's better to understand from the general context of the difference between deep web and clear web, because those play a big part into the intelligence piece as well. So what I would say is like, you know, the dark web requires a Tor browser to gain access into. Typically it's the onion router that people are going on. 
the deep web, the difference between deep web and dark web is deep web doesn't require Tor browser, but it's sites that are very hard to gain access into. And they also would are sites that would be good to track as well. And that could be Reddit, WhatsApp, AppChat, Telegram, Discord, you know, 4chan, 8chan, those types of sites. And deep web actually makes up 80% of the internet. And then the clear web is anything you can find on Google. And funny enough, that that only makes up 10% of the internet. Okay. All right. Well, that's something yeah, right at the gate. I think that's, that's you know, gives a different sort of look at it all. I think it clears things up for a lot of people in, in that sense. One thing that struck me in the definition was the fact that like it, it was quite factual in nature, but it also seemed to miss some of the contextual factors, you know, some of the, the other elements of what it sort of represents to some people who have some degree of familiarity with yeah. what the dark web is. And what, what would you say to that? Yeah, because when you think of the dark web, right, your first idea of it is like a criminal underground, right, where bad actors are hanging out, you could purchase drugs. However, it's funny because the how the dark web was created, that, that wasn't its initial purpose, you know, and it just kind of devolved over the years into becoming something like that. But it, it was created, I mean, at least the Indian Rider was created by the U.S. Navy back in the you know, early 2000s for their operations. So, I mean, there are still good things to the dark web. I mean, the principle remains the same where it is a space to encourage whistleblowers and for people who might be in countries that can't speak freely, you know, they have that ability to do so through the platform. Getting back to the U.S. Navy and when they originally created it, what was the purpose for it from their perspective? Mostly for undercover operations that they were working on. And so they wanted to anonymize their... uh, their researchers. And so they ended up having to make the, the Tor browser for that. Okay, I understand. Well, this also might be an opportune time to hear a little bit more about your work, specifically, you know, Cyber Threat Intelligence and Dark Web Advisor. Yeah. So first of all, I absolutely love the work that I get to do. It's amazing. I'm like, on, I'm on the front lines of it all, being able to see what, you know, the intelligence that comes in and then what happens after the intelligence has been actioned upon. So I work for a company called Searchlight Cyber. So we specialize in dark and deep web threat intelligence. And I work with our clients to getting them the right intelligence that they need, mostly from a security perspective to help refine their security posture. So if you're talking with, you know, large enterprise level organizations, they're needs of dark web threat intelligence would differ from someone who, you know, let's say a small, small bank out of Texas or a law enforcement agency, they would require much different dark web threat intelligence. And so I work with them understanding what their needs are, their use cases, and then making sure giving them the right intelligence to do those operations. In terms of that, without divulging too much, obviously, and, and client confidentiality, would you be able to like give an example, perhaps, or like a bit of a case study, like really quickly? Or yeah, fun example that I can give is we were working with an organization, a healthcare organization, and it was late last year, so November, December timeline. And at that time, uh, one of the major ransomware groups, Lockbit, was going crazy, really targeting a lot of healthcare organizations. And so initial access brokers, so people that would are on the dark web selling, not necessarily part of a ransomware group, but on their own might be selling some sort of like access or 
exploit or something, they were selling a lot of those that were related to healthcare hospitals. And so we saw all this increase of activity going on. And so we were working with the, with our hospital healthcare. So we already knew, okay, that we have to be, you know, very alert because we see all of this increased activity that's going on of people selling credentials to your, to not just your hospitals, but to others in your sector, right? And then what we noticed too is as, as we're monitoring all this intelligence is we saw that this particular hospital, someone had leaked data. It was old data that they leaked, but nonetheless, they did leak it and they embedded newer data within it. And that included different passwords and usernames of the employees of that hospital, which is huge, right? And then sometimes you can follow the comments on it. So you might see, you know, other threat actors might comment on it or give their advice, or if they're purchasing something, they might request to purchase it or whatever. But in this case, there wasn't that much communication going on to this post. And it wasn't until later that we saw that those credentials were then sold. And then we saw that my favorite part is we could, so we can track traffic going to and from the dark web to this organization. And we saw high peaks of incoming dark web traffic to the hospital, which means that someone, whoever had purchased or gained these credentials was now trying to implement them. And so you can see it all in real time. And it it was like a perfect timeline. Fortunately, the hospital was, you know, they're on top of it all. They were receiving the intelligence or acting upon it. And they, they knew what to do to, to mitigate it. Yeah, it's frightening, though, to, to consider some of these organizations that aren't prepared for this and how would they, you know, manage their way through it without that assistance. I, yeah. I can see, certainly see the need for the work that your company does or, or other companies similar to that and, and professionals like yourself. But uh, yeah, I'm sure we're going to get into it further. I mean, some of the other threats associated with all of this. But I was thinking maybe we could slide into this other segment, A Day in the Life. To add even further clarity to the work that you're doing, you know, what, what would a day or even a week look like for you? Yeah. So when it comes to cyber threat intelligence or specifically dark web threat intelligence, the most important part is being on top of it, understanding because it, it it is an evolving landscape. Things change constantly. I have to start my days and end my days by really reading what these threat actors are up to and you know tracking their movements. So that's a big part of it is making sure I'm up to date on on everything. And and, it, and that changes so frequently. I mean, ransomware groups, they're not notorious for being there for a very long time. They come up, they stay for a stint, and then they are usually taken down or they fall apart themselves. And then I work a lot with clients trying to understand sort of where their gaps are, what their needs are, and how we can make sure we're implementing the right intelligence for them. Because you don't just want to overload them with a bunch of intelligence that has no relevancy to them. So that's another part of it too, is like, not only are we trying to get the intelligence to them on a timely level, but also making sure that it's relevant to them so that they're not then having to deal with a bunch of noise and a bunch of extra work. That's another big part of it. And then making sure just, you know, keeping on top of how the customers are with uh, working with the intelligence. And if anything does happen, they see something, you know, let's say they see their credentials are being sold by a threat actor for, you know, $5,000. What do we do with that information? Like how, how do we action upon it? And so then 
working with them to connecting them with getting the right folks that could help them, you know, and advise them on what to do when that happens. It sounds like to me, like a lot of education, you know, self-education in terms of just staying aware and current with what's going on, but then also even with your clients, educating them about what's taking place and perhaps courses of action and, and whatnot. Am I on anything there? Is that an accurate assessment? Totally spot on because also it's, it's changing so quickly. Like, Every single day, there's something new. And I think especially now with like the emergence of AI, it, it's, it's just happening at an exponentially faster rate. So it is it is hard though. Like when you, you know, if you put an article out there about this stuff, who knows how long, it might be a week until it then becomes inaccurate. Um, right. Yeah. It also strikes me as something that, you know, like a pendulum swinging between, you know, stress and pressure that that causes, but then also a degree of excitement and yeah. you know, like there's always something new to be learning. And if you're already into this, you know, to, to begin with, you're, you're constantly being, you know, quizzed on your current knowledge and, you know, projections as well as where things could be going. So I could see levels of, you know, like I said, stress, but then also fulfillment on one hand. Oh, it's so much fun. It's absolutely yeah. so much fun. Like being, that, you know, basically you're on the front lines, you, you see it all, you know, you can see what the threat actors are up to, you know, what their discussions are about and, and tracking it, you know, so there's a lot of, a lot of value in that. Absolutely. All right. Well, I have this other segment here, Pathways, and maybe we'd return to you. And I'd like to know about what led you into this work. I mean, in your youth, were there particular qualities or traits that, you know, when thinking back now, you're like, oh, yeah, this, this, this was meant for me. Like this profession was, was where I belong based off of this, this, and this. Or was it something that just sort of, you know, just happened along the way? Yeah. So it's not going to be as exciting, probably, this part, <laughs> just because um, <laughs> I think I felt it was very fortunate how I fell into this role. But I did come from a family of nine children. And so most of them, I'm the middle of nine, and all of them are very hardworking, you know, programmers, doctors, lawyers. And so I always knew I wanted to do something big, right? So... When I went into undergrad, I had absolutely no idea what I wanted to do. I actually majored in marketing, but it wasn't until my first job out of undergrad was a position, a sales position for a cybersecurity company. Now they didn't do threat intelligence. It was just general network detection and response. And so it required me to move across the country to Washington, DC, where I'm at currently. And after doing that for about five years, that's when I really fell in love with the cybersecurity space. Like I was like, this is it for me. Like what what was it specifically? Do you recall? Like, was there one specific thing that really hooked you in initially at least? Or it was mostly the, the fast-paced environment. Seeing the work that you could do actually does tremendous effects, right? So if helping clients, you know, from getting attacked by a ransomware group, right? And when you're on that side of it and you can see it, it, it means so much more when you see it come out on the news, like, Oh yeah, that's, we did that, you yeah. know? So yeah, that was incredible. It was a space that I had no idea of originally. And then I got recruited to work for a threat intelligence company a couple of years ago. And I've just absolutely loved it. So, and I think it's like my favorite niche now within cybersecurity is dark web threat intelligence particularly yeah yeah getting back to 
your youth, were there any like particular traits or qualities or aspects of your personality? Do you think that aligned with this or do you align with it now in, in sort of thinking back on, on who you were and what you've you know become? Yeah, I think I was very, as a young girl, I was extremely curious, always curious. I was always asking questions. So even though that didn't directly relate to threat intelligence, a big part of that plays into threat intelligence now, right? So when, you, when you're doing your research and you're trying to track threat actors, you have to be curious. You have to see what they're up to. And, and so I think that kind of translated well. Yeah, I, I can see that. I mean, like that curiosity and maybe even creativity to a certain degree as well, yeah. I would assume, you know, in, in trying to project where things could go or, you know, a potential threat down the line for clients if they're not taking care of this or that or, or whatever else. I mean, I'm guessing that would also play into things as well. Certain degrees of creativity on top of, you know, layers yeah. of curiosity. Oh, yeah. Lots of layers of creativity, especially when you're working with clients and they have their needs and their use cases and you're trying to make sure that what you're providing them is valuable to them. And, you know, if you're dealing with so many different factors at play. So, yeah, definitely being creative and flexible right, right. with working with them. One more quick question about you and your, your past. Were you always into tech? Was that something that was always an interest or is that something that evolved over time? So I am from Washington State which is a huge tech hub. So I was very familiar with the tech space, like you have Amazon over there, Microsoft, Boeing. So I knew tech well. But did you like it though? Were you attracted to it, I mean? So I wasn't originally because I didn't like what it did to Seattle because it really changed up Seattle's culture when it, when all this tech pushed into it. So I had a, kind of a bad taste in my mouth with that. But then as I started with this company, my first company in, in tech, it completely changed it for me. That's when I like actually started loving it. And you're on the front of it all, you know? So Yeah, yeah. Like, the reason I ask it, I've had so many different guests on this program who've you know said like, well, I had no no ambition of getting into industry A, B, or C. But then through experience or being exposed to something, suddenly their world just changes and their mind opens up. And lo and behold, that's where they end up going and spending the next 10, 20, 30 years of their, their working lives and, and how much they really enjoy it. So I think it's, it's a point worth noting here that these things do occur from time to time. And I was curious whether or not that was the case for you. And it would seem to be. So yeah, thanks for sharing that. Well, I would like to, to move into another segment here, our Q&A discovery. We can kind of continue this back and forth. And in introducing you off the top, I did note how a lot of your work has been instrumental as far as shedding light on some of these shadowy aspects of cyber threats, you know, emanating from the dark web. And also to the other side of it, neutralizing some of these dark web threats. You know, maybe we could hear a little bit about how you go about doing each of those things. Yeah. So basically how we work as a, as a company is like we're collecting massive amount of data sources. So, you know, I did mention the difference between dark and deep web. So we're pulling data from both of them because at deep, there's a lot of nefarious activity on deep websites as well, especially like Telegram or Reddit. And so essentially we gather all of that data, we put it into our own platform, and then we can create our own searches and our own investigations. And then we create profiles for these different ransomware groups or threat actors and then track their movements. So if they are purchasing an exploit, we can see that they're purchasing it or 
we're tracking them, you know, from bidding on something or any activity that they have, we, we follow all of that. Would you say that that type of knowledge, I, I, I'm guessing like the high level organizations that are operating within that space and doing some, you know, fairly nefarious activities, they would know the extent at which you guys are able to do all of this. But then also on the flip side, I'm, I'm guessing that there's some like fairly amateur actors out there within that space also that just don't know like the, the degree to which they can be tracked. Like I'm thinking that they might assume that, okay, I'm operating on the dark web here and, you know, basically anything, almost anything that I do is going to be protected. Like I, I, no one's going to yeah. see. That's true. You have to think of it in the perspective of these threat actors. So they are financially motivated, right? So, and they're going to do things that they've had success with, and then they're going to keep replicating that. So they have certain tactics, you know, certain processes and procedures that they follow that's very unique to them. And so once you have an understanding of what those look like, it makes it a lot easier to track their movements. And they know they know people are monitoring them. So because of that, there are some certain tactics that they've then incorporated to try to bypass some of these, some of these, you know, uh, if people are watching them. But then again, you know, since we know that we we keep tracking it. So it's kind of like a cat and mouse game. But for the most part, I mean, some of these ransomware groups, they're very successful at what they do. Very, very successful. And they have a process of how to do it. And they stick to that process. And so, you know, what we have to do is we, we built out that process with the cyber kill chain, and then we follow where they might be, where they land based off of their movements in the dark web, how far along the process they are, are in. It sounds like to me, like a lot of patterns, like recognizing patterns, following patterns, and then also being aware that some of these actors might break patterns on purpose to kind of... Yeah, yeah, dust up the trail a little bit. And then also you guys having to try and anticipate some of those patterns being broken, perhaps. Or I can see, again, where the, the curiosity, creativity comes into this, no doubt. Yeah, because oftentimes threat actors will know that if I'm a company, they know I want to monitor what is being said about my company on the dark web. And so what they'll do is if they, let's say they had access to my company, they would say they won't explicitly name my company, but they'll name where I'm based or what my revenue is and what type of access that they have. And so it does require a little work on our end trying to narrow down to find exactly who that company is. They do that on purpose, you know, because they don't want us to find out that they have that certain level of access. Yeah, yeah. You can also imagine this being, like you said, you know, fairly fast paced in the sense that. They're not there very long. So like, you know, yeah. you have to be on your toes and, and working as quickly and efficiently as possible to, to be able to like keep up and to, to go after them. Yeah. You know, this notion of being on the front lines, you've mentioned a couple of times over now already. I mean, that's, you're, you're seeing it, like you said, all unfold before your eyes and you've really got to be, you know, aware and, and, and knowing what you're doing to, to be able to combat some of this. So yeah, I can see a certain degree of thrill and excitement associated with all of this and yeah, the level of fulfillment and reward that you're getting from some of the work, you know, once you are able to track some of these people down. Oh, it is. It's such an amazing feeling. Absolutely. Mm. Okay, I'll get this other question here. And it's kind of on the heels of the last one. I understand that you've yourself have developed this reputation for helping others better understand cybersecurity issues. And in fact, you were recently invited to this prestigious think tank in Germany to speak on this topic of 
of dark web and combating some of the threats and social engineering and all these different topics here. And also your speech ignited some discussion and even reverberated to the point where it led to further research on this topic being initiated. I'd love to know a little bit more about some of your innovative you know, approaches to dark web threat intelligence that you know definitely appealed to, to some people and, and why do you think it resonated so much? It's a really good question. Thank you. So when it comes to cybersecurity, I feel most of the time security teams are just like running at the, the seat of their pants and they find out they're being targeted. They don't have enough time and then they end up just having to pay the ransom or, or whatever they end up doing. So with threat intelligence, really the value behind threat intelligence is, and we use, we call the cyber kill chain. So it's basically the seven steps a threat actor takes to complete their objectives. Most of the time people aren't alerted until that they're being targeted until like steps three to five. But with, if you are leveraging threat intelligence properly, you could be alerted at the very first step at the reconnaissance phase. So the stage where the threat actor is just beginning their exploratory efforts and trying to figure out you know, where the vulnerabilities might lie or, or how they, they plan to break into that company, that network. And so my talk was about the power in dark web threat intelligence and being able to monitor it correctly and then responding to it in, in a timely manner. And so a lot of research came out from it, from the conference about maybe finding ways to sort of predict. So based off of threat intelligence that we have, this, this massive data set that we have, can we predict movements of the threat actors or what part of the kill chain are they currently at? So are they at, you know, delivery? Are they at installation? Where are they, where are they sitting based off of their movements? And that would be huge. If that research goes through, that would be massive. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it, it's shifting the whole mindset rather than being reactive, right? I mean, waiting yeah. for these things to unfold. You're actually being in place and ready for them and, and yeah, being a few steps ahead to, to be able to combat some of these threats. Huh. It also sort of strikes me the fact that your industry and what you're part of is still very much evolving, right? Like th this, this would seem to be in like in a lot of other industries, theoretically speaking, things that have already been discussed, have already been sort of established, but you're right on the forefront of all of this evolving right now. And the fact that you are not only acting within this space, you're actually you know, influencing how things are potentially unfolding or could unfold and shifting and shaping the industry. That must be <laughs> a rather rewarding experience unto itself. Yeah, it is a very, very interesting space because most of the time to get into threat intelligence usually requires some sort of like military background. And so being able to use it for cybersecurity is really fascinating. I mean, to see these threat actors, to get a view into their their movements and their conversations and then trying to piece it all together to see okay I wonder what you know like did they purchase that exploit and then if they did what are they what do they plan to do with that who are they targeting you know it's kind of like uh, it's like a it's a puzzle putting it all together and then you have to be proactive when it comes to cybersecurity yeah yeah and and like i said you know returning to your contribution to it outside of like your daily work you know, looking at it from that theoretical perspective on how to actually 
structure the, the, the entire space or industry that you're within and helping align some of the people that are operating in that space to be better prepared for it, to, to yeah. you know, have the resources available that are going to be directed towards, you know, actually combating some of these things. And uh, yeah, that, yeah. That, that must be exciting, an exciting thought too. So there's a, a lot of education that requires it because threat intelligence is pretty new within cybersecurity, right? It's becoming more and more popular. So there's requires a lot of education in it. And then also the action piece of it. Okay, I get this piece of intel. Now what do I do? How do I respond? And so it's also being able to manage the, the action as well. Well, I have this other question here too. In terms of, I guess, like what you're encountering in your work, you know, the individuals that you come across, some of the organizations, the ideas, yeah. you know, that sometimes like on, well, certainly on the dark web, not, not always the best people, not the best intentions in that space. So that must be a challenge to, to deal with at different points. But then also on the flip side of things, you're working with organizations, NGOs, perhaps, that are working to combat some of what you're seeing, some of this depravity, you know, of, of what humanity sort of represents, at least within that space that you're operating in. So as an individual in that sphere, what is it like, you know, having to, to manage these emotions of, of seeing some, some terrible things and what they represent, but then also having that light there that you have people like yourself, you have other organizations that are trying to combat this. How do your emotions swing between that? How do you control? How do you manage those, those feelings? That's a really good question. It is true. If you are spending a large amount of time going through different forums and marketplaces and seeing what's for sale, you start ending up getting a very like bleak view of humanity, right? Yeah. Like, oh my God, like this is absolutely terrible. Sorry to, to interrupt there. I mean, I just had recently on this program uh, a guest on who's combating things like internet crimes against children, you know, and, and some of the things yeah. that are, you know, being sold or being pushed around within that sphere. I mean, that's certainly a, a dark, dark topic, and but that's reality. I mean, those things do occur. So, I mean, certainly within your work, there's probably data sets that you come across or your colleagues do, things of that nature and worse, perhaps. Yeah. It must be a challenge. But then, like I said, there are people out there in organizations that are trying to fight this, that are trying to combat all of that. It must be a bit of a yeah. wild ride, emotionally speaking. Yeah. It's interesting too to see seeing the the personalities of these different threat actors and ransomware groups as a whole, and how they speak to each other. And we know that they're financially motivated, right? So they're going to do things so they can get getting some money at the end of it. But then you, know, you can know what their goals are and like how direct they can be and, and almost kind of insensitive because there's some ransomware groups that have a morality code. So some will say like, we won't go after hospitals. We won't go after healthcare institutions. We will only go after, you know, big banks and law firms. Whereas we have some ransomware groups that they'll just go after anything. I mean, there's one group that only goes after children's hospitals. It is weird to see the difference, like nuance, especially when it comes to morality on there. Some have a moral code and, and some don't. And so and that's important to monitor as well, though. So, you know, like if you're a healthcare organization, you want to make sure those guys that have absolutely no moral code, that they would go after any hospital, any children's hospital. You want to make sure you're you're following their movements. And then on the other side to it, though, is like you're, you know, we're working with security teams. So 
and of all different levels, understanding like what their pain points are and what you know how to refine their security posture to help prevent some some of these new tactics these threat actors have out there. So in that in that sense, it is a good feeling when you're working with the client itself to actually being able to help them mitigate risk, you know, have different steps in place to actually stop it. So in terms of yourself, do you find your emotional swings going back and forth or are you fairly just steady and even throughout? Yeah, there's some days. There was this one ransomware group that I follow that I don't particularly like just because you mentioned they go after children's hospitals. And to me, that is, I find that so, so low, you know, and so that sometimes it can get to me a little bit. I don't really do a lot of work with like the trafficking or, you know, the drugs or the law enforcement side of things. So if I was dealing with that, that would be a completely different case. That would be extremely hard. But, you know, fortunately, I'm just working with groups that just want to attack big banks. All right. Well, I have one more question within this segment here. And this one's more on a personal, maybe even philosophical sort of level. And I'd love to know about what this work means to you. That's a really good question. I guess my goal at my company right now is we're trying to use the intelligence for pre-attack purposes. So to make sure clients have the information that they need to stop themselves from being targeted attack, preferably, you know, earlier on the kill chain as possible. And it's really hard to say, but if if you are able, let's say you find a piece of intel that's related to a customer. And then you do further research, you find more intel and you gather it all together and you give it to the client and you let them know this is what it is. This is what we think that they are planning to do. This is what we suggest you should do. And if they do all of that, and if they don't get hit, you can't say for sure that they were going to get hit in the first place, right? So you can't say like, oh, we saved them from a ransomware attack. You can never be a hundred percent sure on that. So for me, it's like, even though I can't say, oh, I help save this hospital or help save this from a, yeah. you know, a, a company being completely network destroyed. It does feel good, though, that the intelligence that we do provide gives them value in that, you know, hopefully keeps their security posture more refined. Yeah, yeah, that makes complete sense. I get that. And also, too, perhaps even as well, if you have clients that align with some things that are important to you, you mentioned like children's hospitals, perhaps is one example. But I mean, if you're helping some of those organizations avoid some of these threats and and allowing them to do work that, like I said, aligns with your values and what you think is important within this world, you could also probably, you know, attach some sort of meaning to things like that. I'm guessing as well, at least. Yeah, definitely. And it's good, too, when you become very close with your clients and understanding all the weights that are on their shoulders and how we can help with that. Yeah, exactly. Especially when you're working with hospitals and, you know, education systems and maybe places that don't have the financial means to invest in large security tools, just a little bit of Intel to help them ready themselves. Yeah. I mean, it must be like such a frightening space for some of these organizations to deal with or to have to even entertain the thoughts of handling issues like this. So in speaking with people like yourself, I'm guessing that you might act as a bit of a crutch for them at times and giving them some confidence in, in how to proceed or how to prepare themselves. So 
yeah, there, there must be value there too, I'm guessing. <laughs> oh, yeah. Sometimes you give them this this piece of intelligence that's just like horrendous, right? Like really scary. Sometimes they'll be like, what do I do? What do we do? And I'm like, okay, we'll take care of it. You know, we've dealt with this before. We can, you know, bring on the right people to help support. So. Yeah, yeah. That's a really interesting point. I didn't even consider that until you just brought that up there. But it's like sort of like managing emotions on the client side. Well, we are moving on a pretty good clip here. And I do have this middle segment of water cooler story segment. And here I just ask guests to indulge listeners with a story related to their work. So I'm really interested to hear what you have for us today, Mary. Yeah, this is actually one of my favorite stories. It speaks to what we were talking about today is using intelligence to stop potential cyber attacks. One of my human intelligence analysts, so they are the ones that go undercover, gain access into some of these sites. They found a piece of intelligence that they sent to me about how some threat actor was selling a major airline's their like domain access control credentials. And they were selling it at a pretty high price. So sometimes when threat actors or initial access brokers are selling something, it's hard to verify if it's true or not. But we were able to engage with the threat actor and in to us, it, our confidence level felt like this is legitimate. So then, then I was like, okay, well, I don't know. They're, they're not a client of ours. And we're not exactly sure who this airline is, right? So we had to do, just based off of what the threat actor said, they make it very, very broad, right? Because they don't want the airlines to know either. So then being able to then do the research to f- narrow it down to who we think this airline is most likely. Because you don't, if you're going to give me this information, you want to firstly make sure it's legitimate. And then also that it's them and not someone else. And so once I got to that point and I felt confident enough, like 90% confident enough, I then went and I reached out to them. And I reached out to everyone on their security team and I brought it up to them. I was like, I have a piece of intelligence for you. You should be aware about. And so they set up a call and I presented it to them and they were like, oh, (laughs) (laughs) like that's when they were like, what do we do? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Um, yeah. And so, and then I, when I reached out to my team, put together, okay, right now, this is what we suggest to do. There's like five steps that you can take to help protect yourselves. It looks like, you know, it seems like the threat actor is trying, you know, this is how they want to get into your system. So this is how we think you need to mitigate it. This is what, you know, enforce the MFA across all systems, things like that. And that was, oh my God, that was such an amazing feeling. Like find, firstly, finding that piece of intel, they weren't even the customers. And then reaching out to them and being the first to tell them about this. And then having a meeting set up with the entire team, walking them through the intel that we found. It was a really, really amazing experience. Yeah, I bet. I bet. Is that fairly unusual as far as like finding a client that way? Or is that almost a standard practice where like, just by chance, these things come up and, you know, they, they need somebody obviously at that point or they probably do, or they want someone. And the fact that your organization or organizations like yours dig this up and are able to find it in such a timely manner that they can still do something about it. I'd imagine that might be a fairly convincing way of, of landing clients as well. Does it happen yeah. all that often? 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, that that in itself just demonstrates the value of the, the tool, right? right? Exactly. They're like, okay. <laughs> yeah, right. um, yeah. So that certainly helps. Uh, but oftentimes there is a lot of, you know, if we're like smaller, smaller size organizations, there we see initial access brokers selling credentials for companies of all different sizes. And so for those, if, you know, if they're not clients, that's really, really hard to monitor. And that would require a lot of effort on our end to track down who these are and then, you know, send it over. And then you'd also don't want to, if you're not 99% sure that this is the target, you don't want to freak them out either. So it's a fine line then, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, thanks for sharing that. Yeah. It's an interesting look that I think well, I know myself and no idea like that sort of interactions or those types of interactions existed in that way. And then also kind of like getting into the weeds a little bit about how, you know, companies like yours are able to, to source and find clients by like, doing good for one, but then also, like, you know, yeah. just the, I don't know, random nature of it at times, I guess. Well, I do have one last segment here, a crystal ball segment, as the name implies, we're looking towards the future of trends, predictions, so on and so forth. You've already brought this up in the conversation today, and we've spoken lightly about it. It's this nature of like cat and mouse between some of these bad actors within the space that you're operating within. And also this this factor of technology, how it's constantly evolving, changing. You mentioned right off the top, you know, things are shifting and molding themselves in a different way each and every day. So what what would you say to that? I guess the, the role of technology in you know, in your world and, and, and how big of a factor it is playing constantly? Yeah, yeah, that's a really good question. Because, I mean, especially now with, like, the emergence of AI, I feel like everything is just moving at a much, much faster pace. And so we have uh, recently, like, when ChatGPT came out, that was really awesome for us, like, you know, in terms of, like, you could also use it for bad. But for good, you know, there's a way it's, like, an assistant to help you some of the work that you want to do. The same time, though, there was also a fraud GPT that was created. And that was like used for by threat actors to to build malicious code or, you know, write even a lot of had to do with like uh, building out phishing emails or writing social engineering words, and especially because these threat actors are usually Russian or Chinese based. And so if they're not native English speakers, then the fraud GPT would really help them with building out their the emails that they're they're looking for. It gets really tricky with that. I mean, it it is scary to think that, you know, they've probably, you know, we have seen ransomware groups increase their recruitments within, you know, the last couple of months or so, which only means that they plan to increase their attacks. And you know, you know, they have a, they have pretty large budgets now, and they're really investing a lot of that into technology. And so it's just, it's like an arms race, like cyber arms race. As long as we keep up to it all, I think it'll be okay. But it is very scary to see how quickly things are evolving. Yeah, absolutely. Like that when I was entertaining the notion of this conversation and and researching it and getting into it a little bit, just again, from a layman's perspective, like that to me was what really sort of like threw me a bit is is what you just shared there is like technology represents so much on both sides of the coin. You know, it's a game changer on both sides, but it's 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 about like you said just keeping up, I suppose, and uh and staying ahead of things. And and also too, I guess like we were speaking about earlier, it's like these patterns and trying to like 
pick up on them and then also noticing when their patterns are being broken at different points and being able to identify it, anticipate as well. So exciting space to be within. (laughs) Pressure cooker at times, I'm sure, but all the same, uh, you know, high degrees of fulfillment, you know, I would assume. So, well, we are approaching the, uh, the hour mark in this conversation. I can't believe it. We feel like we just got started here, but I can't thank you enough for all your time and insights. It's been an absolute pleasure. Yeah. Thanks for coming on and joining the program. Yeah, thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure for me as well. Now, for those interested in learning more about Mary and her work, you can do so via LinkedIn. You can also find her and her company at Searchlight Cyber. And for reference, all this information, including links, will be in the show notes. And also too, hey, I mean, if you like today's show, please be sure to share and tell a friend. You can also show further support by rating, reviewing, and subscribing wherever you access your podcasts. And then lastly, as I mentioned off the top, head on over to YouTube. I do have that channel over there where you can check out video highlights of the conversation. And if you do go over there, I would love, 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 like or subscribe. Don't forget to join us on the next episode of Life as a, where we'll continue to explore and unearth the details of professions and the people behind them. I'm your host, Christopher Schoenwald. Until next time, stay curious about life and living. Thank you.